From the digital team at savannahnow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Bremer, and joining me on this Memorial Day week episode of Difference Makers is Scott Lohr, President and CEO of the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force. Difference Makers is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. on those who gave their lives in defense of this country and the liberty that we as Americans stand for. This year also marks the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, and perhaps no fighting force played a more significant role in the European theater than the Mighty Eighth Air Force. The Mighty Eighth was founded right here in Savannah and is still celebrated today through the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force, located at the Interstate 95 U.S. Highway 80 interchange in Pooler. The man who leads that museum, Scott Lohr, is today's Difference Maker. First, some background on this series. Difference Makers launched in 2018 and feature the men and women who are making a difference in the Savannah community. They hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. You probably recognize the names or at least the organizations these Difference Makers represent. This podcast is a chance to learn what makes them successful. Thank you for listening and enjoy this interview with Scott Lohr. President and CEO of the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force. So this is Memorial Day week, and I think it was pretty appropriate that we line up a difference maker that is has some ties to to the military and thinking back in terms of the people who have served our country. And there's really no organization in town or for the and with that in mind. Uh, person in town better to talk to at this time than Scott Lohr, who is the president and CEO of the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force. Of course, they had some they had some festivities earlier this week around Memorial Day, which what's actually happened to be their their reopening date from from the coronavirus pandemic. And we're going to get into the details of, around all that later in the podcast, but start where we usually do, and that's with getting to know Scott a little bit better and how he came up and what his connections are to history and the military and the mighty eighth air force. So Scott, first welcome. Secondly, are you a Savannian? Tell us, tell us about your, your local connection. Uh, thank you for the invitation to be with you, Adam. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, I am, uh, I'm not a Savannian. I'm a, I'm a Florida native. Uh, in fact, kind of a rare Florida native in that I'm a, third generation Floridian mm, uh, rare. and uh, uh, grew up in, uh, in, in, in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and uh, for uh, back when I grew up, Fort Lauderdale was a, was a small town uh, and mm-hmm. had a huge inferiority complex uh, because the big city, Miami, just South of it was uh well, got all the attention, uh, all the action, and in fact, I remember as a as as a young boy, uh, five six years old, uh, having to go to Miami to see uh, first run movies. They didn't even come to Fort Lauderdale then, so that gives you uh, a sense of uh, of just how small Fort Lauderdale was back in the uh, the early 1960s. What was the what was the center of life down there? What did what did your parents do? What was the what was the economic driver? Uh, well, it was uh, I I would have to say uh, uh, the the obvious one to me growing up was tourism, right. uh, and up until uh, uh, the mid seventies, uh, Fort Lauderdale was the uh, spring break capital of the world, and it was. Uh, uh, I, zoo might be an appropriate term. I don't think it's an exaggeration by any means. When for about eight weeks in the uh, uh, in spring, it was Fort Lauderdale was just uh, covered up with uh, with uh, college students, and I, I do remember that. Uh, it's a pretty indelible mark on me uh, when you would go go down to the uh, to the beach A one A. And it was just um, crawling with with college students, and I'm I'm the third in the lineup of four children, and 
both my older brother and my older sister went uh, went out of state uh, for undergrad uh, school. My sister went to school in New England, and my brother went to a, a small liberal arts school in Ohio. And uh, I just remember our house being being full of uh, of their uh, their quote unquote friends. I mean, you, sure. you didn't you didn't know how many friends you had back then when you were from Fort Lauderdale, and our our house uh, was just they were they were sleeping anywhere they could find a little space on the floor. It wasn't uncommon for there to be 15 20 uh college kids in 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 my house so so that that left a a pretty big impression on me uh growing up in in fort lauderdale did you spend a lot of time at at the beach or being that close to the beach um i you know i i wasn't um I, i i i didn't go to the beach to uh I wasn't a sun worshiper. It's pretty hard to believe uh, now and then. I mean, today you wear sunscreen. When I was growing up, um, you wore um, suntan lotion uh, and had that reflector in front of you to try to get just as dark as you possibly could. But I didn't do that. I, I, I love the water. I grew up on the water with uh, water sports and and fishing uh had a boat long before i uh, earned my driver's license Uh, that was just fort lauderdale back then Um, everybody uh, uh, i knew got around uh, in their in their boats mostly Um, so i was on the water a lot uh and and enjoyed it tremendously i could i can think of few better places for uh you know for a for a young boy to grow up than than Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I just have very fond memories. Uh, and when people think of Florida and, and more particularly South Florida, they they probably don't equate it with with much history. But uh, my Florida has has a long long history, and in fact um, lays claim to the the oldest city in our country in, in St. Right. Augustine. So it's. Uh, there's a there's much more of a of a of a Spanish history than there is a, an Anglo history in in Florida, uh, but there's a lot of history there, and I um, both my parents were uh, very interested in history, and my my uh, paternal grandmother was a was a wonderful storyteller, and uh, I I don't I they were probably stories and not history, but they fascinated me nonetheless. And uh, um, she kind of got me hooked a little bit on history. Um, my parents, when we the summer vacation, you know, always included stops at historic sites and and museums of all sorts. So, uh, uh, and I, I just I've enjoyed history ever since I uh, can remember. And uh, so I, I was hooked at a at a pretty young age. Um, but my great conversion was uh, while I was an undergrad student at Florida State University, I had the opportunity to study for six months in, in London. Uh, and I went to London as a uh, an international finance major. And six months later, I came home a history major. And uh, so uh, just that was a great conversion for me and continued to, on my, in my education and advanced degree and uh, and museums, studies, historic preservation, American history, uh, and for for 35 years, I've I've been doing this uh, this public history thing, uh, and I've enjoyed most every every minute of it. There there have been some challenging times, to include the the one that we find ourselves in now with the, uh, sure. the Corona crisis. But but by and large, it's been a, a very enriching professional career. Yeah, that is an amazing uh, jump from, from finance and numbers over to history. Was history always something you excelled in in K through 12 career? Because I know a lot of kids, you're either you're either really like history and enjoy it or you don't want anything to do with it when you're in school. Which one are you? <laughs> uh, for the most part, with one exception, uh, I did really well in all of my history courses and uh, uh, really every opportunity I I uh, got to uh, take a history course, whether required or elective, I, I did so through uh, through high school. Uh, the one exception was my my senior year in high school. I uh, made a very poor grade in my uh, 
modern European history class. I was uh, suffering terribly from senioritis, uh, and the class was the class was right before uh, my lunch hour, and um, I just uh, lunch hour became a lunch two hour, and uh, um, I didn't go to class often enough. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't I didn't have a very good grade for, uh, for in my modern European history course in in my senior year. But but hopefully I've redeemed myself uh, uh, later, later on and certainly throughout my professional career. And the one thing about Europe is it, it especially during the 20th century, it changed so much and so fast. It was was probably pretty hard to keep track of anyway. Um, it, yeah, well, you do. You you know your history. Yeah, um, the the map of Europe changed dramatically throughout the 20th century, um, and uh, certainly the uh, uh, the museum I have the great good fortune of being associated with presently preserves and presents uh, some of that history and 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 the contributions that that our country and more particularly the uh, the Eighth Air Force made in. Uh, uh, in restructuring the the map of Europe uh, post World War II, you mentioned your grandmother was a was a great influence on you. What other were what were some of the other influence you had coming up? Were your your parents blue collar? Were they professionals? What uh, what did you glean from them? Um, um, my uh, uh, my father was uh, was an executive in the uh, in in the steel business, okay. uh, and my mother. Um, for the most part, until until I was in high school, was was a homemaker. Uh, mm-hmm. So she 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 was home, uh, sort of the uh, the traditional uh, family of of that era, the fifties and, and the sixties, um, with uh, one parent working uh, and and one home. Uh, doing much of the uh, uh, of the raising of the children, I do recall my dad was around um, often. I mean, all the time he was at you know at every every school event, every sporting event. Uh, my parents were there and were very uh, very active in in the lives of in my life and the lives of my uh, my three siblings. So. Um, a pretty traditional uh, middle class upbringing, uh, and for that time, that business acumen that your that your father no doubt had did that. Uh, how much did that translate down to you? Um, I, I think I, uh, um, you know, through uh, uh, through osmosis and through uh, through my education, uh, yeah, I, I feel pretty comfortable uh, uh, in my uh, my business uh, skills. Uh, and experience. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, as the administrator of of the Mighty Eighth Museum, and having served in administrative functions for uh, 33 of the 35 years I've I've been in the public history profession. Um, I, w- I would say that um, you know that that that's where where my uh, my strengths and skills are. I I, I miss. Um, doing historical research and, and curating objects, but um, I, I think I'm better suited uh, for the administrative side of things. I enjoy the challenges and uh, uh, have experienced um, some some success uh, in that 35 career in your career, excuse me, in in, in leading. Uh, public history organizations. Let's fast forward to your your trip to England. You said that's where you really took liking to history again. Was there obviously the, the, the history over there is is tremendous. When you're when you're not working, it's it's pretty easy to look at shoot probably a, a millennium's worth of history. What really resonated with you and and really got you going on the bit by the history bug? Uh, again, I uh, I lived and went to school for six months in. Uh, in central London, uh, and um, we are we had classes three days a week, and uh, and Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and Wednesday, uh, all the students were encouraged to uh, uh, to explore London, uh, which I which I did as often as possible. Uh, going to all the museums, the Victoria and Albert, the British Museum, the Churchill War Rooms, the Imperial War Museum, uh, on and on and on. Uh, it's just a, it's just a remarkable city. It's, it, it remains my, my most favorite city in the world. But we, we were, uh, 
also to in, encourage to um, to jump over to the continent when whenever we could, um, whether it was every weekend was a three day weekend. Um, but again, I was a student, so there uh, there were limited uh, finances. It wasn't as if I could hop over to the continent every weekend and travel. But then we also had long breaks as well, um, where uh, groups of us would travel. My classmates would travel. There were 45 of us on, on the program. Um, and we went all over, uh, all over Europe. Uh, and that was back in the uh, Eurail Pass backpack days for uh, American college students. And you could, you could move about pretty freely, um, and it, it wasn't uh, overly expensive uh, to travel in those days uh, in Europe. But uh, I just remember going to all these all the countries: uh, Germany, Italy, Spain, Austria, France, uh, everywhere I could possibly get. Um, and just visiting major cities and and all the cultural resources that uh, that you could find in those major cities, uh, museums particularly, um, and just getting really hooked on uh, on the things I had read about, the things that I had seen photographs of. Now I was I was standing in front of them or in those buildings and in front of those artifacts and uh, and and really having encounters with with the real thing, the, the stuff of history, as I like to call it, uh, and just uh, get it, getting hooked and coming back uh, again, uh, changing my major to history at Florida State, then continuing on with um, advanced degrees in history and museum studies and uh, uh, really never looking back or having any, any regret in, uh, in committing myself to a uh, uh, an adult life in in public history, and I'm sure that there are times that you you wander from your your office down to the museum floor, and you're you're around exhibits that are set in Eastern England, where where the mighty apes staged out of the fly missions, or or Normandy. Yeah. When you visited those places, I'm assuming you probably hit them when you were over there for the, those six months. You visited those places. Obviously, you didn't know that eventually one day you'd be working in that, but. Was it is it kind of a surreal experience when you think about that connective tissue? It it's um it, it makes it it makes the connection even stronger. Um, you know, time and place. So ha- having having been to those places and now um, uh, being responsible for uh, a museum that that um, preserves and presents the the history of those places and their their connections to the eight air force it is um personally very very inspiring uh and uh, uh very motivating uh this the the national museum of the mighty eight air force is a is a remarkable remarkable museum a, a powerful experience for anyone who visits even if you do not have a a personal connection to the eighth which i i do not have adam i don't have a a personal connection um, um i my both my grandfather served in world war one uh mm-hmm. they were both american citizens um uh, but one actually served in the French Foreign Legion. Um, okay. That's a long story. That's for another time. Um, and my father was uh, was a Marine Corps captain in the Korean War, and his his brother was uh, also served in the Korean uh, and Vietnam Wars. I have a brother who's a retired Air Force Colonel. But there, um, throughout that lineage, there, there's no connection to the Eighth Air Force. But um, as you as you asked earlier, um, by visiting places uh, that had an Eighth presence, by visiting them uh, decades ago, uh, now here at the museum, I, I feel reconnected to them uh, through the mission and, and through the objects that make up the collection of this great museum. We are speaking with Scott Lore of the National Museum of the Mighty 8th Air Force on this episode of the Difference Makers podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. 
CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether you're a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now back to Scott Lohr. Let's talk about your professional career. Ultimately, you ended up there at the Mighty Eighth, but but where did you start and what was the path that ultimately led you to Savannah and the Mighty Eighth? Uh, I started my first job in the history museum profession was uh, dates to 1984. Uh, I was an, an assistant curator in the St. Louis County Parks and Recreation Department's Historic Sites Division. Now, that's a mouthful. Oh. <laughs> I, I worked in St. Louis, Missouri, <laughs> in the uh, uh, in a uh, in a in a county operated um, uh, museum division. Uh, the county, in a number of its parks, had historic buildings and historic sites. So we, they had a small um, they had a small history division, and I was part of that as an, an assistant curator um, for a little over a year, uh, and uh, enjoyed it very much. Uh, and uh, then I had an opportunity to return to my native state of Florida at uh, the age of twenty six. Uh, and lead a, a couple of small history museums in the Fort Pierce, Florida area. So at 26, I found myself an administrator. Um, and uh, we'll have to confess that uh, much of my graduate school training uh, prepared me uh, not at all to be an administrator. <laughs> so it was a lot of on-the-job training. Uh, but uh, yeah. So I, again, since the age of 26, I've, I've been in museum administration and I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, and fortunately, I've learned a great deal along the way that I think has prepared me for um, my my uh, my tenure here at, at the Mighty Eighth. Between um, Fort Pierce and uh, Savannah, there were stops in uh, uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, Augusta, Georgia, Newport, Rhode Island, and and Wilmington, Delaware, uh, where wow. I have progressive, progressively more responsible positions as uh, as executive director or CEO of of uh, of large public history operations. Most most recently, before coming to Savannah, I was the uh, the CEO of the. Uh, State Historical Society of Delaware for for nearly seven years, uh, but it's uh, it's good to be back uh, back back home as I call it back back in the South. Uh, my wife chuckles; she's from North Carolina. She's she's a real Southerner. I'm from South Florida, so I'm I'm a Southerner <laughs> geographically, not necessarily Geographic. culturally. <laughs> so, That's, but, right. Uh, That's right. But it's uh, it's good. Our uh, Again, my wife is from North Carolina. I'm from Florida, so we're sort of equidistance right here in Savannah. Uh, we did spend eight eight wonderful years in Augusta, so we have we have lots of friends here in in the state of Georgia. And both our boys went to the University of Georgia, and both of them now live in in Charleston. So it's um, you know they're just just up the road a couple of hours. And, just uh, it, it's uh, the right place uh, at the right time, personally and certainly professionally. It's um, it's an honor to be uh, in a leadership position with the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force. It's uh, um, for 24 years uh, the museum has been fulfilling a very unique mission of preserving and presenting the history of this country's most storied air force, the the Mighty Eighth. And um, and the the leadership associated with the museum is is first rate. Uh, they they challenge me every day, uh, which is which is a good thing. Uh, and they are deeply deeply committed to and passionate about the work of this museum. So when you saw the job posting or you got the call, and it's okay, this is a museum dedicating entirely to this one unit 
of the military and just the great contribution they made at a key time in our history. What was your, what was your first reaction? Were you just really eager and excited about it? I, I was, uh, Adam, I, I remember, um, uh, again, the, uh, my first interview, uh, the first time I, I set foot in the building for that initial interview, um, I, I sensed that this was, uh, the museum was a very powerful place, uh, which indeed it is. Uh, and um, uh, I, I came in uh, the day before my interview uh, and visited the museum anonymously, took notes and uh, uh, soaked in as much as possible. And again, sensed that it was a very powerful place and a, a museum with, with huge potential, uh, that the collection was first rate. Uh, that uh, you know, everything about it was was done well, and that um, uh, I I I really wanted to be a part of it, uh, and that uh, that my uh, my years of experience would uh, would benefit the museum, uh, and that um, I I could help to advance the museum to the next level and and allow it to to continue to to carry out that that unique mission of preserving and presenting the the history of the eighth air force which which exists today and the the eighth um the eighth was was as many people know was activated in savannah in january of 1942 uh, seven men and no aircraft and it would grow to become the the world's largest air armada uh 350,000 men and women served in the eighth in uh in world war ii so there's um there's a very proud and rich history and heritage, but the eighth um, continues today to be very much a part of of uh, of our country's um, global defenses, and the, the it is headquartered at at uh, um, Barksdale Air Force Base in Shreveport, Louisiana. So before we hit the record button, I was telling you that uh, there's a this is a town full of museums and historic sites, and I'm a bit of a history buff, but if you pressed me and said, what's, what's your favorite? What's the one you look forward to visiting the most for me? The answer is the mighty eighth. My son is very much into uh, airplanes and, and really enjoys it. But the thing that I really connects me to the mighty, mighty eighth is all of the interactive exhibits you do from, you know, the briefing and going from one room to the other and you do a really good job of, of putting the visitor in, in the time and the place what all how has the museum evolved as you as you've since you've been there and what were some of the what were some of the ideas that that you guys uh, really embraced and and helped the museum evolve the museum from uh e- even uh, as a concept the museum uh, uh has been about uh the the stories of the men and women of the 8th air force um, yes, there are, there are airplanes here, and of course, the the centerpiece is is the B seventeen city of Savannah. However, uh, that airplane and all the other airplanes, and in fact, all the other objects, are here to transmit stories of of individuals uh, who served, uh, and that. That to me is 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 the power of this museum, and quite honestly, the power of any museum. It, it's it, it, they they tell the, uh, the the stories of 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 human beings about about the human experience, and we we as as a species are are interested in in each other, and so those stories are what connect people here uh, to to another generation uh, to the themes of, of of duty sacrifice honor commitment those 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 are those are bedrock themes in uh, in the American experience so in in many senses this this museum is is about connecting with um, the American experience, uh, going back to our our founding fathers, and connecting with the larger human experience as well. So that's what makes this a very powerful place. And 
going forward, this museum will will continue with the vision of its of its uh, its patriarch, uh, Major General Lou Lyle, who was in the Eighth Air Force, uh, commanded two bomb groups of the Eighth Air Force, and and then went on to have a um, a, a um, very successful career uh, in the Air Force. But it was it was Major General Lyle's vision all along that. Uh, there would be a place, uh, a repository uh, for the objects and for the stories of the men and women of the 8th Air Force. And we will, we will carry on that vision. Um, and we, we continue to do that, I think, very effectively through exhibitions. Uh, yes. In the past two and a half years, we, the museum has really concentrated on growing its, its public programs. Uh, growing its uh, education programs for school children. The museum sees uh, uh, over 15,000 school children a year from Georgia, um, from North Florida, and from the South Carolina Low Country. And, and school children come from uh, far and wide to uh, uh, to get history lessons here at, at the Mighty Eighth Museum. So we're we're continuing really to to grow uh, the 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 educational offerings and the educational impact and benefits of, of this museum. We're also um, uh, getting more into into rotating exhibitions. Uh, okay. People think. Ah, I've been to the I've been to the Mighty Eighth Museum or any history museum once. There's no reason to go back. History doesn't change, et cetera, et cetera. Well, history um, there's so many elements, so many perspectives to to history and historical events. Um, so we're um, we're offering more in the way of rotating exhibitions. So there's always something new, something fresh here at the museum, and and reason for you to to visit often. Uh, reason perhaps for you to become a, a member, uh, a supporter of the museum. We are a private, not for profit. If I may make a little pitch right now, um, we receive no we receive no public funding for the operation of this museum. Uh, so we uh, we either um, we either earn or, or uh, you know, generate or have contributed to us all all the income each year that's required to uh, to operate the, this facility. Uh, it's a it's a two million dollar uh, roughly uh, annual budget, and those those dollars are are, are earned either through admissions revenue, uh, retail sales in the museum shop. Uh, renting uh, rooms in the facility, or through grants, gifts, memberships, uh, things of that nature. All of those are revenue streams that uh, that, that are used to uh, to meet the operating obligations of the of the museum each year. You mentioned visiting. By the time this podcast publishes, he will be reopened. You're reopening on Memorial Day, or have reopened on Memorial Day. Can you kind of walk us through what the what preparations for reopening have been like? I know uh, in an earlier podcast, we talked to the Davenport House curator in the middle of the pandemic when everything was shut down. And, and she was talking about the challenges and, and kind of the conversations that were going on on how we were going to have to adjust post-coronavirus, which I guess we're not post-coronavirus, but we're to the point where stuff is reopened again. What did you guys have to deal with and what can people expect when they come and visit now? The museum closed uh, March 18, uh, which seems um, generations ago, but it's really just about 10 weeks ago. Um, and um, since that point, we, we've, we've been uh, uh, we've been looking at when we would reopen. And uh, so reopening on Memorial Day was uh, was appropriate. Uh, in terms of of the mission of the museum and 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 remembering uh, and remembering uh, those who, uh, who who made the ultimate sacrifice uh, to preserve liberty and freedom uh, in in a number of wars, um, sixteen million American men and women served in uh, in World War II. Over four hundred thousand again made the ultimate sacrifice. 
uh, and 26,000 of the 400,000 some were uh, were Eighth Air Force Airmen. So uh, every day we we remember those who uh, who gave their lives uh, for for us, uh, gave all their tomorrows so that we would have ours. Um, but in reopening, um, unlike uh, the Davenport House and and other house museums, which uh, operate in uh, very very tight spaces in in many instances and uh, historic buildings uh, which don't necessarily lend themselves to large groups uh, and have challenges uh, all their own even in a in in a in a normal environment and under normal conditions the mighty eighth museum is is 90,000 square feet so we have uh, we have more open galleries, uh, which uh, uh, will will help us. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the museum, uh, since reopening, uh, is operating at, at about 25% of capacity. Meaning we are we are controlling the number of, of visitors who are in the museum at any one time. Again, in this phase one reopening for the museum, we are uh, only only um, walk-in visitors, uh, no large groups of any sort, uh, or uh, or use of the use of the facility uh, for for events, uh, programs, those sorts of things. So, uh, it's a very controlled environment. Uh, it's a very clean and sanitized environment. Uh, we have hand sanitizing stations. Uh, throughout the galleries, uh, we are recommending that our visitors wear uh, face masks. All of our staff is wearing face masks. All staff members have their temperature read every morning before they come into the facility. Um, so uh, all of those um, those guidelines and requirements that are that are coming out of um, uh, the CDC uh, out of the state of Georgia uh, federal government guidelines and those that are unique to our facility are are being implemented and and followed stringently by staff so that we uh, uh, not only provide for the health and safety of of the staff but also our, our visitors as well yeah because a lot of your docents that do a lot of the the activities and i know you're not necessarily doing guided tours right now it's all self-guided but when you have these exhibits uh, a lot of the docents are seniors um what kind of impact does that have i assume that a lot of them uh, being in a the most vulnerable category are are taking some time off how are you filling those filling those roles um uh, as you mentioned um it, it's a self-guided experience now for for our visitors, and the museum is designed, uh, for the most part, for uh, for self-guided uh, tours and for our self-guided experience for our visitors. Um, you mentioned the uh, the mission experience. Uh, the mission experience often is is facilitated by by a museum docent. Um, that will not be the case during this first phase. Um, we 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 anxiously <laughs> uh, await the return of, of our our docents. Uh, the docents were very disappointed when they received the uh, the communication from me saying phase one reopening w- will exclude your presence. Uh, but they understand. Uh, they they certainly understand. This is done in in their best interest for their health and safety. Uh, and while they're disappointed, uh, they know it's it's the best decision to make and the one again made in in their best interest. But they'll be back soon enough and uh, contributing once again to uh, uh, a, a marvelous experience here at the museum. Our, our docents, uh, we have. Um, the docents are a subset of our larger volunteer core, and the museum is is very fortunate to have uh, close to a hundred volunteers that that help this museum go each and every day. I, I I can't imagine this museum without out those volunteers. I guess I I won't have to imagine. I'll get to experience it here for for hopefully a short period of time. So since they won't be here, uh, but but we. Uh, we're looking forward to the day when when all our volunteers can return and and once again 
renew their contributions to 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 the museum in in all areas, whether it's uh, docent, whether it's helping in the the research library, uh, helping in administration. Uh, their uh, their impact uh, pervades the entire operation. You mentioned earlier the youth education. Uh, where are, one of the highlights I know of, of the summer camp schedule in Savannah are the summer camps that you all hold. Are you planning to do those? And if so, how do you how do you go about that? Given what's going on in, in the world, uh, very carefully, Adam is how we uh, go about um, sponsoring those summer camps. Uh, summer day summer camps uh, are open and operating in the state of Georgia. Uh, in addition to the policies and procedures that the museum has always had with its very successful summer camps, uh, the governor's office has issued a uh, 32 guidelines which uh, must be met on a daily basis uh, by these summer camps and. Uh, the museum has has reviewed all 32 of those guidelines and uh, is and will be in compliance with those guidelines as well as its own guidelines throughout the uh, the nine weeks of, of summer camp, which uh, which begin um, June 1st. Uh, we will begin the first one week session of nine weeks of of summer camp. Um, the children, uh, the campers. Uh, we will take their temperature each morning. We will, they will social distance. Uh, most of their activities are outside, uh, which uh, which is an advantage. Uh, and when they are inside, again, there'll be social distancing. There will be uh, hand washing. Uh, each one will be uh, issued a, a face cover. In fact, they are getting a, a mighty eighth bandana. There you go. And they'll be required to. Uh, They'll take their bandana home each night uh, and wash their bandana. Uh, in the past, uh, each camper was issued a uh, a water bottle. Uh, we will not be issuing water bottles. The campers will have to bring their own water bottles, take them home each night, uh, sanitize them. So, some I'm I'm getting in the weeds. But uh, I uh, want uh, your listeners to be assured, and if any of the listeners are parents of the campers, I want them to be reassured that the museum, again, is taking very seriously uh, operating summer camps in the uh, coronavirus era, um, and that their their children will be be safe with us. Uh, we're going to need their help. Again, we're sending them home with things that need to be cleaned and washed and sanitized uh, every evening and then come back the next day. So we need parents' help. Uh, but we, um, we're we confident that the measures are in place to, to assure a wonderfully enriching educational and, and safe and healthy experience for the campers this year. What's been the interest? Is uh, is it are you getting the sense that the parents are a little hesitant, or has the interest been pretty strong? Uh, the interest has been very strong, <laughs> quite, quite frankly. Um, uh, the sessions are um, we're, we're limiting the number of of campers in each session, and we are uh, uh, we've reached uh, limit with most of most of the nine sessions. Um, I, I think. Many of these are repeat campers, so uh, parent, parents have, uh, have faith in the museum. Uh, they also realize the educational benefits uh, uh, of our summer camps. I mean, it, it, it's have fun and, and learn uh, at the same time. And, and I suspect that many of these, these young campers don't realize just how much they're learning. Um, but it, what will be neat is down the road when they're in those history classes and they hit the recall button, just how much will come back to them from their time in, the, in these summer camps. And I, I think these it, summer camp is important, particularly a summer camp of the nature of, of, of ours and those uh, sponsored by, uh, by a, a history museum or an educational organization. Um, students have been out of school. Yes, they've been doing online learning and, and distance learning. Um, but but um, 
you know, there, there's going to be some some slippage in the retention of, of information, uh, and and perhaps these uh, the summer camp sessions here at the museum will uh, uh, will be helpful in in that sense and uh, helping with retention and helping with uh, growth of knowledge and and general education overall for these young people. The Difference Makers podcast is a great way to learn about Savannah and those who make the city tick. But there's a catch, of course, the two-week wait between episodes. Keep up with all that's going on in our town on a more regular basis by signing up for our free newsletters. We deliver an opinion page newsletter daily, and our news team does likewise. And for the foodies and Georgia Southern fans among the audience, weekly newsletters on those topics are available as well. Visit savannahnow.com slash newsletters now to get those newsletters delivered straight to your email inbox. Again, that's savannahnow.com slash newsletters. I want to wrap up here. Um, we just passed the 75th anniversary of victory in Europe Day. We have, I guess it will be the 76th anniversary of D-Day coming up here shortly. Uh, we had a really finely written piece by Tybee resident history history buff Eric Hogan about the 75th anniversary of E-Day that ran in a paper a couple of weeks back. Um, it, as you look at it, and obviously because the museum has been closed, you probably haven't been looking at it the way that you otherwise probably would have. How special is, is this time and, and how important is it for us, uh, especially given the fact that the generation that served in World War II, they're, they're fewer and far, farther between right now. How, how special is, is what happened 75 years ago and, and what you celebrate at the museum? How special is it right now? There, the question uh, elicits in me, I'm just, there's a flood of, of emotion and uh, a number of different ways I can go with my response to, to the question, uh, Adam. Um, I, I'm reminded there are just a handful of, of World War II veterans remaining here at the museum who, who are active here at the museum. Uh, and uh, they, they're all 96, 97, 98 years old. Uh, and as you said, it, they they're not going to be with us with us much longer. In fact, it's 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 no small miracle that 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 those few are still with us. I mean, there there are very few people who who live to to such an age. Um, and it it's having them here um, is very emotional and and very powerful. And quite honestly. Uh, I, having them here, uh, not that we take them for granted, but but I think we we lean on them uh, and think that they will always be here. I mean, yeah. we, we, the one, the four or five who are here, who are ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, are here on a regular basis. I mean, for the most part, uh, with the exception of one, they drive themselves to the museum, so they're still largely self sufficient. And we think of them that way, but um, one day they'll they'll be gone, and one day all of their fellow veterans will be gone, and that's when the work of this museum and and other museums um, that uh, have their mission uh, World War II or or any later wars, Vietnam. It's hard to believe that Vietnam veterans now are. In in their in their seventies, um, but uh, once they're gone, the the work of the museum is going to become it's going to become challenging. Not that it isn't challenging now, but it's really begun, going to become more challenging when when you can't have when the veteran isn't there, when there isn't a physical presence, because history begins to really fade, become distant, and and not irrelevant, but much harder to connect to when you don't have that that physical presence. Uh, the next best thing is is their stories, uh, is the objects. Uh, those are the things that will continue to make the connection, and that's that's what this museum is all about and has been since day one is is making sure that those stories and those objects. 
uh, are preserved and that present and future generations will benefit from and learn from um, those who came before them. When you've been out in the museum and seen those, you know, whether they're they're my age or in the 40s or they're, they're, they're kids in the camps uh, or, or millennials, when you watch them experience the museum and, and start to connect the dots on really how vital these men and women who served were in, in preserving our way of life, is it, uh, it, does it get old <laughs> to kind of see that and realize that? Or what kind of strikes you when you, when you see that realization on the faces of the people? It, um, it, it never gets old. It just gets even more gratifying to realize that, that um, you're fulfilling the mission and every day you're, you're making connections, um, uh, intergenerational connections of uh, child to parent, uh, child to grandparent. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it, it never gets old and it, it is deeply rewarding every day uh, to to see people uh, come in this museum uh, and leave, um, and, and you can see that it's been an emotional experience uh, to to see them to leave with a with a greater knowledge and certainly a, a, a greater appreciation of of what people have done, sacrifices that have been made, and and answering the call to duty um, so that that we we have and we enjoy uh, what we what we have today and and uh, and then it becomes our responsibility it's our stewardship responsibility to see that that we we pass along this history to uh, to future generations well as we sign off here I want to point people to the website mighty org, and eighth is spelled out so it's mighty and m e i g h t h dot org has all the information on hours and how you can donate in the exhibits and, and a link to a lot of uh, we didn't get to talk much about it but all the research and the oral history and everything that's that's gone on I think that's certainly another way that that these stories are going to live on and, and be told to the future generations but I'll encourage everybody that, again, it, they're reopened, and Scott and his team are doing their best. And, uh, Scott, thank you very much for taking the time to, to spend with us today and, and fill us in on what all you've got going on out there at I-95 and US-80. That is correct. It, it's it's been a it's been a great pleasure uh, spending the past uh, uh, hour approximately with you, Adam. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Thank you for all that that you do. That's a wrap on the May 29th episode of Difference Makers. Thanks to our guest Scott Lore and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as America's Second Harvest, Mary Jane Crouch, Savannah film and ice cream icon, Stratton Leopold, and Savannah Mayor Van Johnson. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Our next episode will post June the 12th. On behalf of myself and producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening.